0: John chapter 16. Verses one through four is our study this morning. John 16:1 through four. Every word that our Lord spoke is exceedingly precious. He did not waste a single syllable. Every word should be gathered up and stored and cherished. And carefully guarded. Every word has great purpose and power behind it. To give light to the soul. To revive the heart. To convert the inner man. They are full of spiritual light and power. And that is exactly what he tells us in verse 1. These things have I spoken uh, unto you. He's talking about talking. He's explaining what he has already explained. He's giving the reasons for his previous speech. You see that there in verse 1? These things have I spoken to you? You'll see it again in verse 4. Verse 4. But these things have I told you. Later on in verse 4, and these things I said to you. He's talking about his talking. He's explaining what he has just said. He's causing us to look back at what was said. Now, if you were hearing this all in one night, perhaps it wouldn't be difficult. But maybe you've forgotten what happened in chapter 15. Let's remind ourselves just briefly this is the upper room discourse. Our Lord knows that He is going to leave His disciples. He's already told them that, but they had forgotten. And so in chapter 13, He washes their feet. And then He tells Peter, You're going to have to consistently confess your sins if you want to be my follower. And when Peter says, Oh, I've got this covered. Everyone will deny you, but I won't deny you. Jesus rebukes him and says, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And so in chapter 13, we learn the first word of the gospel. Humility. In chapter 14, we saw the one great term, Believe. Trust. Believe in Christ. Have faith in Christ. So that's the second great word of the gospel. There must be a humility, chapter, four, chapter 13, and there must be a trust or a faith. We are hoping to receive new members very soon. We're going to begin, Lord willing, a new members class next Sunday. If you want to give your testimony and join this church, say, humility, John chapter 13. Say, faith in Christ, I believe in Jesus, chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, we saw this theme of fruit. Jesus is not content if you just talk. He wants action. He wants fruit. And then in John chapter 15, he said, there's going to be a difficulty. When you attempt to bear fruit, you're going to go out And try to bear spiritual fruit. And there's going to be a real roadblock in your way. And what's the roadblock? John chapter 15 verse 18 to the end of the chapter. This is the last study we had, what, two or three weeks ago. And the difficulty is going to be this. The world hates you. Look back at John 15 verse 25. Look in verse 25. All this will come to pass... So that the word could be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without any good reason. When you come to bear fruit, you're going to find it very difficult because the world is not neutral. They're not trying to help you. They're not going to move aside and say, oh, you want to make it to Jesus. Go right ahead. Oh, you'd like to be a dedicated Christian. Well, then let me just give you some help. They're going to oppose you. And you're going to find your life made difficult. Now, why would Jesus tell us this? That's this morning's message. In this morning's message, Jesus is giving the answer. Why even talk in this negative way? Brothers and sisters... If you are going to be a faithful Christian, you must speak negative truths. Because the Bible is full of negative truths. And here's one right here. Jesus says, these things I spoke to you so that you would not be offended. Let's begin with that one. In verse 1, I'm telling you these things so that you would not be offended The word offense there means fall into sin. Stumble into sin. It's found in the parable of the soils. The four soils. The first soil is on the road. And the birds come and eat the seed. The second seed is cast on the stony ground. And because there's rock underneath the ground, they can't get any root. But the third soil, it's with all the thorns. And those people are easily offended. Those people stumble. They fall into sin. They've forgotten the words in Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have they who love the law of God and nothing will cause them to stumble. Nothing will offend them. These people are ones because they don't have roots. Because they're not getting the the nutrients from the soil. They're going to be easily bothered. They're going to be tripped up. It's very interesting that commonly, I've been a pastor now for 21 years. And if someone has a problem with something I'm preaching, it's usually the less committed people. The people who don't come as often to church. Or the people who aren't members. And that's what our Lord is saying here. If you don't pay close attention to my words, if you don't devote yourself to my words, you're going to find yourself falling into sin very easily. The pastor will say something and you'll say, Oh, that's too hard. I can't take that. Well, our Lord warned us about this. He told us up front, if you don't pay attention to my words, you're going to find yourself falling into sin. You're going to say to yourself, well, that's too hard. He shouldn't have said that. I, I can't take this anymore. You're going to turn away. What can we do? So that we won't turn away? The answer is we can prepare for a hard life. And that is the thesis of my message today. Do not be surprised at a hard life. That's it, right there. Did you hear it? Don't be surprised if your life is hard. Expect a difficult life, and you will probably be spared from many temptations. Let's see that today under three headings. The first one is this, two ways that the life of a Christian will be hard. That's in verse 2. The second is two reasons that the life of a Christian will be hard, and that's in verses 2 and 3. And the third point today is why even give this warning? Why even talk to people about a hard life? Why not just be quiet and and not not bother with this? That's the third point, the value of this warning, and that's in verse four. So let's attempt to study this today, that your life will be hard. You need to expect difficulty, expect problems. Do not expect easy success. Do not expect life to be easy and simple. Let me show you two ways that that happens for a Christian. It's in verses 2 and 3. Look in verse 2 and tell me, what's the first one? How will the life of a Christian be hard? In verse 2 it says, they will put you out of the synagogues. The first way that a Christian's life will be hard is social rejection. What was the synagogue? Some people say the synagogue was the church. Yes and no. You know the story of the Old Testament, right? It's the story of the Jews or the people of Israel. They had a temple built by Solomon, but that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians about 300 years after it was built. The temple is destroyed And now where are the Jews going to meet? What would you do if you were a Jew? What happened is this. Jewish men decided to build buildings, little houses in each village where they lived. And in each of those buildings, they would meet to study the Torah. And more than that, they would teach their boys there. And when they had a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment party, they would have that at the synagogue. A wedding or a funeral would be connected with the synagogue. The birth of a baby would be announced in the? The synagogue was the cultural center. Maybe like a community center. All you needed to have a synagogue was ten men. If ten Jewish men were present, then they could form a synagogue. They would start saving their money and then they would build a building. These synagogues were all over the Babylonian and then the Persian and then the Greek and then the Roman Empire. They were spread out anywhere that that Jews, a population of Jews were found. But Jesus says to the, the disciples, I want you to know what they're going to do with you. They're going to kick you out of society. When there's a funeral, they will not want you. They'll tell everyone else, yeah, you all can come, but we don't want that one. Lloyd, stay home. All the rest of you can come. When there's a party or a wedding, they'll invite everyone except you. They're going to exclude you. It's going to be painful. Interesting, no people group in the history of the world has experienced more racial bias and ethnic bias than the Jews. It's called anti-Semitism. But interestingly enough, the Jews are full of racial and ethnic bias. Even while men hate the Jews for no good reason, the Jews hate other men for no good reason. Jesus tells them up front, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues. Why would they do this? Because you disciples now have a new way of life. And it's organized underneath Jesus Christ, not the law of Moses. You see, if they continued to follow the law of Moses, there wouldn't be any difficulty. But these disciples are going to have to make a break with the law of Moses. They have an entirely different operating system running their their lives now. It's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the operating system for the disciples of Christ. Blessed are those who endure persecution. You see, all of these teachings are going to make them very different. And these differences tempt the world to force the believers back into their previous mold. <clears throat> it's as if the world says this. The world is saying this. You used to think like us and act like us and go where we did, go where we went and act the way we acted, but now you're different. You're the one that's changed. We didn't change, you changed. Did you realize that the life of a Christian is constantly offensive offensive? To the world. Because even if you don't say anything. Which you should say things. Even if you don't say anything. Simply living as a Christian. <laughs> says to the world. You're wrong. You should be speaking the truth. You should be kind and loving to your wife. You should be patient and gentle. You should be hardworking. How many of you at work have ever noticed that when you are working, someone else got angry with you because you were doing too much work and making them look bad? I have heard that repeatedly over the last 17 years. That some Christian is working at work and then someone gets angry with them because of the manner in which they're working. That's going to happen. Social rejection takes many forms. Let me give you five of them. It could be an unhappy spouse or children. Paul even warned in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that unbelievers may want to leave you if you follow Jesus Christ. If you're married to an unbeliever, they might actually want to leave you. Now, you should not divorce them. But they may want to divorce you because of your Christianity. A second way you might experience social rejection. Friends who gossip or withdraw. Galatians chapter 2 gives us an example of that. Between Paul and Peter and Barnabas. Friends who will gossip or withdraw themselves. A third way you'll experience social rejection A lack of invitations to parties, gatherings, or events. A fourth way that you might experience social rejection is a loss of job or being passed over for a promotion or an opportunity. Society has a deep internal problem with Christianity. And if they have an opportunity to get away from Christians, they will. And it can be very painful Walking alone and being misunderstood is a very heavy cross to bear, isn't it? We all desire to be understood. But Jesus warns us up front, you're going to have to be content casting all your care on Him for He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. You're going to have to be content saying, if I'm only understood by Jesus Christ, I will continue to walk as a Christian. I will walk by faith and not by sight. I will go on living having seen a city whose builder and maker is God. And I will go on by faith regardless of how I'm treated on this earth. But you need to continue to read in verse 2 because they will not stop merely with banning you from society. Tell me in verse 2, what's the second way that they will oppose the true Christian. Make life hard. They will, kill you and think they're serving God. they will kill you. This is the heaviest penalty that men can inflict. Notice this. They will do the utmost to stop you. They'll even kill you. Christian persecution is the great fact of history. Fox's Book of Martyrs is filled with Christians being killed over the course of hundreds and even thousands of years. I have a book on my shelf called By Their Blood. It's over 400 pages and most of the stories in that book are half page or a page long. There are hundreds or maybe thousands of stories in the book entitled By Their Blood by Marty and James Hefley. And that book The subtitle is Christian Martyrs of the 20th Century. And in the introduction of that book, they say there have been more Christians killed for their faith from 1900 to the year 2000 than in all of previous church history. That book is filled with examples of men like Paul Carlson who's a missionary from America to Congo in 1964. And while he was there, a group of freedom fighters in Congo came and attacked his hospital where he had started a bush hospital for free. And he and two other doctors were there. They got their wives out, but Paul and his teammates said, we're not going to leave because our people, the Swahili people, can't leave. And when the men came with their guns the missionaries ran they got to the wall and as they got to the wall one of the men had to help the other man up paul carlson said to his friend put your hand in my put your foot in my hand and i'll boost you up then you pull me up he pulled his he gave his friend the boost reached up grabbed his hand And as his friend was pulling him over the wall, Paul Carlson was shot through the head. 1964. That's only one of hundreds of examples. They will kill you. Don't think it's an easy life. Do not count on a comfortable life. Count on religious hatred. Let me give you right now an illustration that is dangerous because it might be too flippant, but it might be just right. I think it will be. With that warning right there, I think it will be just right. There is an evangelist in America, in California, named Ray Comfort. And years ago, Ray Comfort began preaching a sermon that he entitled, Hell's Best Kept secret. He wrote a book by the same title, Hell's Best Kept Secret. The point of that book is very simple. Hell's Best Kept Secret is, do not tell people that they're bad and wicked sinners. Tell people that if they become Christians, their lives will be happy and comfortable. And Ray Comfort begins his book with this illustration. Imagine that you get on an airplane, fly from here to Cape Town. When you get on the airplane, they put you in your chair, and there's not a lot of room. It's like the size of a bus chair. So if you've ever ever been on a bus, then you understand about the size of an airplane chair. So there's not a lot of room. And if if the person beside you is large, or if you yourself are large, then it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And Ray Comfort says, imagine that you get on an airplane, and they tell you when you get on the airplane, put on this parachute, because if you wear this parachute, you'll have a very good flight. And so the man puts on his parachute, and he sits in the chair, but he finds that that parachute is unusually bulky and uncomfortable and he's leaning forward and his back begins to hurt and he's hot and the other passengers look at him and laugh at him because he's wearing a parachute on the plane and so after he gets halfway through his flight and he can't sit back and rest then down the aisle comes the stewardess who's bringing coffee And she offers coffee to him, but she spills it on his lap. And he says, This is ridiculous. I was supposed to have a good flight. Here I am, hunched over with this thing. It's not making my flight better, it's making my flight worse. I can't even move. He takes the parachute off in disgust, throws it on the ground, and says, I'm done with this. But imagine now a second scenario a man is on a plane. And the stewardess comes walking back and says to him, we have some bad news. The captain's just announced that two of our engines are out. And any moment now, we are going to spiral downward 5,000 meters. And most of us will die unless unless you have this parachute. You are going to jump out of this airplane. And if you don't have this parachute on, you're going to die. Now imagine the difference in the two passengers Now the man puts on the parachute and he's not bothered at all that he has to bend over. He doesn't mind at all that it's hot in the plane. In fact, when the stewardess spills the hot coffee on his lap, he's actually looking forward to the jump. He wants to get out of that plane. The difference in the two was their expectations. On the one hand, he was told this parachute will make you comfortable and happy. Put on the parachute. On the other, he was said, no, the plane's miserable, the flight's terrible, and you have to jump. Better put the parachute on. That's what our Lord is doing in this passage. He's telling them up front, life is going to be hard, not only through persecution, but it's going to be hard by social rejection. It's going to be hard because you're living in a sinful world. You're living in a world with Termites. You're living in a world with mosquitoes and rainy days. You're living in a world with viruses. Don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be comfortable. Expect it to be hard, tiring, exhausting. Expect broken relationships to overtax your already exhausted emotional reserves. And now he's going to give us two reasons for this difficult life. Let's look down in verses 2 and 3 and see the two reasons. Look in verse 2. They're going to kill you, and what's the reason, what's the motivation that they're going to kill you? They're going to kill you because they have this idea that when they kill you, they're actually serving God. God. Does that sound strange to you? The Roman religion, when Christianity first began, believed that they were serving the gods by exterminating the atheists. Who were the atheists? The Christians. The Christians were counted as atheists because they rejected the Roman pantheon. Are you following me on this? An atheist is someone who does not believe that there is a God. The Romans believed in many gods. And their gods were gathered together in a collection called the Pantheon. That means the collection of all the gods. And the Christians rejected the Pantheon. They said instead, Jesus is Lord. Taken from a political slogan where you were required to say, Caesar is Lord. Lord, From the very beginning, Christians have had a political voice. And the Christians said, we'll pay Caesar, but we will not call him Lord. We'll pay our taxes. Romans 13 verse 8, Oh no man anything but to love one another. The context there is taxes. Pay all your taxes. We pay our taxes. We don't kill. We don't steal. We're honest. We're hardworking. But when it comes to this law, we're not going to obey it. We're not going to say that Caesar is Lord. We have a Lord and his name is Jesus. Well, the Romans said, we killed Jesus. The Christians say, he came back from the dead. Well, the Romans said, where is he? He's in our hearts now. Ah, you don't even believe in a God. You're all atheists. No, we're not atheists. We have Jesus Christ in our hearts. The Romans persecuted the Christians. After the Romans, came the Catholic Church, persecuting Christians. Notice, the Catholic Church, that is a division from within the religion. A group within the religion began to persecute those inside the religion. Which is why, it should not be surprising at all, 200 years later when Islam began to persecute Christians because Islam claims to follow the Bible. At least 29 times in the Quran, it tells you, read the Bible. And Jesus is mentioned in the Quran more than Muhammad. They think of themselves as followers of the book. Which is why John Frame says, Islam is a Christian cult. It's a break-off from Christianity. Notice that we have Catholicism persecuting people while they still claim to be followers of the book. And then we have Islam persecuting Christians while they're still cl- claiming to be followers of the book. It goes on to today. The Jews, whenever they could, they persecuted the followers of the book. Islam And Catholicism have always persecuted the followers of the book. So notice that every monotheistic religion in the world has clearly persecuted Christians, and they have done it based on religious principles. They've done exactly what Jesus said. The world hates Christians. Saul of Tarsus did that, he attacked Christians. In Acts chapter 22 verses 3 and 4, he gives his testimony and says, I was killing them because I thought I was specially serving God. But they don't understand their own thoughts or motives. I said there's two reasons why they're going to make your life hard. Number one is they think that by making your life hard, God is actually pleased with them. That's verse 2. They're going to kill you. And when they kill you, they think that they're serving who? But notice the second reason. It's in verse 3. Look in verse 3. What's the second reason that they're going to make life difficult? Because they actually have a shortage of knowledge. They have an educational problem. They've got a mental problem. They are ignorant of the most important things. What two things do they not know? Number one, they don't know God. Now this is very interesting because... All men profess to know God. Except for that little group called atheists. Who profess that they don't know God. But all men around the world... Claim to have knowledge of God. But actually Jesus says the reason they're going to kill you is because they do not know God. Secondly, they do not know who. Who's the second person they don't know? Let me make a few comments about knowledge. One of the great goals of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit is to correct your... Deficient knowledge. Salvation has a teaching effect on people's lives. So, that kind of Christianity that says, unplug your brain, is unbiblical. The problem with unbelievers is they don't have knowledge of God or Christ. The reason that we devote an hour on a Sunday morning and an hour on a Sunday night and two hours on a Tuesday night to Bible preaching is the very fact that our Lord says their problem is their knowledge. They could be helped immensely if they would simply learn Why do I urge you to read your Bibles every day? Because your big problem is knowledge. You're going to need to fix that problem. But knowledge has two elements. There is the aspect of memorizing facts, truths. We need to do that, and that happens when we read the Bible or memorize our verses. That happens when we read good books or when we listen to godly sermons. But there's a second element of knowledge. It's the loving of knowledge. It's the eagerness. It's the happy assent to what has been said or taught that is their greatest fault. Some of the people who kill Christians and some of the people who make your life hard know some facts about Christianity but they do not happily, eagerly assent to these things. They do not say it is good that there's a father and a son. I wish beyond anything I could just go to some world where I would live knowing the Father and the Son. You see, they don't think that. They don't feel that way. They don't feel as if heaven would be heaven if I could just get in a place where I saw the Father every day and if I ever didn't see the Father it was because I was looking at the Son. You see, in their hearts they really aren't happy with God. God. So even though they might know some teachings about him, they've never happily and gladly said, yes, 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 that place will be heaven to me when I have God himself without any filter or block That place will be heaven to me when I will be made partaker of the divine nature. That place will be heaven to me when I see the spirits of just men made perfect and when I've been brought near to the covenant and the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian says heaven is so easy to define. It's anywhere God is. Anywhere I have knowledge of God and of his son. But the unbeliever says, I'm going to make their lives hard. I actually hate them. And I hate their God and I hate his son. And I'm going to make their lives hard because I don't have this knowledge. This second factor that I'm explaining right now is why the schools will never be able to solve the problem of crime or poverty just this week on Wednesday in Nwamatatani I was preaching at one of the houses and there was a funeral next door so they asked me to come and pray with some of the women so I went there and spoke with one of the family members several of them when the woman met me and heard that I speak Shitsonga she was very excited and began talking for a while. She said she's a teacher. And then when she was talking with my little boy, Kulani, she asked him, where do you go to school? And he said, I'm, I'm learning at homeschooling. And she was so excited and said, our problems could all be solved if we had good education. What she meant by that was our problems could all be solved if we had good schools. And our Lord Jesus does not agree with that. You see, the problem they have in verse 3 is that they don't know the father or the son. And that kind of knowledge can't be gained merely at school. A school might be able to help to a degree. It's going to take as I told her. I said actually I believe it's not the school. I I think it's the father at home. <laughs> you can send them to a school, but if they don't have a dad at home who's reading and praying with them, it's going to be very difficult. If they don't have an example of a husband and a wife who love Jesus and are living out a godly lifestyle in front of those children, it's going to be very difficult. And then she said, okay, all right, yeah, you're right about that. But schools, schools are still second best. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to have to disagree with you there too. Because secondly, you're going to need a godly church. You're going to need a church where the gospel is preached. And Christ is presented. And holiness and glory and heaven is put before their eyes. And then if you've got a father and a mother. And then if you've got a church and a pastor. Then a school might be a nice third edition. Friends, there are two reasons why they make life hard. They do it because they're deluded. They think they're serving God. And they do it because they're ignorant of the most important things. And this is why Paul the Apostle prays that men would have the eyes of their heart opened so that they could understand three things. The hope of His calling. And the future inheritance and the power that raised up Christ from the dead. And then two chapters later in Ephesians chapter 3 he says, I'm praying for you also that you would know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. Did you see that? He's praying for them to have knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Knowledge that you really can't have because it's too great for you. There's a lot in that prayer, Ephesians 3. I'm praying that you would have knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Yeah, that's why we need to pray for it. Because you can't simply get it at a school. This kind of knowledge is far too great. You're going to have to go to God himself to get this instruction. Let me close with this third and final point. Because our Lord gives us a reason why he's warning them. Why would he teach this negative lesson? Why would he say these negative things? Look in verse 4. But these things I told you. Why? Do you remember back in verse 1, why did he tell us these things? In verse 1. Look at verse 1. These things I'm telling you so that something keep to keep them from spiritual stumble, stumbling. That's verse 1. I'm telling you all this so that you won't stumble. And I told you at the very beginning of the message, our expectations will help us a great deal. Now look at verse 4. He's going to give us another reason why he's telling us this. Verse 4. These things I told you, that when the time will come, you will remember that I told you these things. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Have you ever noticed that when you're dealing with your husband or your wife? you ever notice that when you're dealing with your children? If you can just prepare yourself and say, I know that when she sees this, she's going to be very frustrated. So I need to be be ready for her response. And then when she's a little frustrated, you respond with kindness and gentleness. And things are so smooth. But if you're not expecting her to respond in a harsh way, when she responds that way, you're taken off guard. And you respond with anger yourself. Our Lord tells us up front, I'm telling you this so that when life is hard, you won't say, nobody told me. No, you knew it was coming. I'm telling you this right now, members at Grace Bible. Your life is going to be hard. The churches that tell you it's all easy and comfortable and prosperity, they're lying to you. Jesus told us, I'm telling you, they're going to kick you out of society and they're even going to try to kill you if they can. Expect it. It's going to be hard. If you raise your daughter in a godly way, it's going to be hard. Because your relatives aren't going to understand. Oh, she can't do that. She can't wear that. She can't say that. She can't come here. Oh, why are you bothering about her marrying this guy or that guy? If you dedicate yourself to Christianity, it's going to be difficult. But he tells us this in advance so that we can prepare ourselves. He tells us this so that we won't fall back. He tells us this because a great many people are caught off guard and when they're caught off guard they fall away from the faith. In 2007, I baptized a man. In 2018, that man fell away. After 11 years, he needed to know up front, life's going to be hard. Do you know anyone who started out as a Christian and then fell away? Can you think of people in this church, some of whom went through the baptism class? I'm thinking of two other men that I know who were actively involved in a Bible preaching church For years, and now neither of them care about learning the Bible or serving God. Or what about the high profile cases? Over the last three years, there were two pastors that I know of who were reformed, both of them in America, both of them in their late 30s or early 40s, and in both cases, both men fell away from the faith the one man doesn't claim to, neither of them claim to be a christian the one man claims to be an atheist now you should have expected life to be hard you should have been at all moments saying oh they're going to they're going to hurt me they're going to bother me friends only a love for jesus that is cultivated by the Bible, that is blessed by the Holy Spirit, that is strengthened by seeing each other in the church consistently, only that love will make you get through a hard life. There's nothing else that will make you do it. And let me say this, after we have just finished studying church history and all these great and godly men over the past three or four months, and I hope you've been listening to those Lectures, if you haven't been coming. There are so many great and godly men. Brothers and sisters, the greatest thing you can do is simply make it to the end without giving up. Just make it to the end, still reading your Bible, still praying, still confessing your sins, still saying, Jesus is Lord, I will not bow to Caesar, I only bow to Christ. And the only way you're going to continue to the end is if there's a superior love for Jesus. And that will only come by the Holy Spirit, by the Bible, and by taking advantage of every tool that he gives you from the church to Christian fellowship. This entire message is captured by two very popular books. The first is a book written by Joel Osteen in 2004. Joel Osteen is filling the position of pastor at an organization called Oakwood Church in America. And he wrote a book entitled, Your Best Life Now. Have you ever... Heard of that book. Anyone ever heard of that book? Have any of you ever read that book? In the book Your Best Life Now, which has now sold eight million copies, that's an enormous number of copies for a book. In the book Your Best Life Now, Joel Osteen tells you that God wants you to have the most happy, peaceful, successful, comfortable life. On earth. Right now. Friends, if your best life is right now, then you're not a Christian. If your best life is right now, then why would you ever want to go to heaven? If there was no difficulties, no rust. No thieves, no crime, no hardships here on this earth then why would you ever want to go to heaven? You would be like the false prophet in Elam that I heard one time who said, you don't want to go to heaven, it's boring up there. Or the other book that I've already mentioned is Fox's Book of Martyrs. A collection of stories about men and women who have been murdered for their Christian faith. Let me ask you, which life does Jesus want to prepare us for? Does Jesus want to prepare us for Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now, the American Gospel? Or does Jesus try to prepare us for John Fox's Book of Martyrs? Some of you they are going to kill. May God give us faith and grace to lay hold of his words. So that we will not be offended and surprised, but so that we'll make it to the end. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.